Let's be clear. We're not interested in talking with people pushing the status quo. We want innovators, people that are flipping the script on traditional healthcare and saying to hell with how it's always been done. Welcome to Healthcare Unhinged with your hosts, Greg Van Dyne and Bo Barron. All right, welcome to the second episode of Healthcare Unhinged. Today we have uh, Rebecca Love with us today, Chief Clinical Officer at IntelliCare. Um, just has an awesome background, really excited to get you on. Um, what spurred this conversation was a, a post about senior care and the current crisis in the United States. And, you know, I think in the, in the last couple of days also have the, the KP strike pending or upcoming. So have a lot of interesting things to talk to Rebecca about. Um, I'll kick it over to her and let her introduce herself and give us a little bit of her background. Greg Bo, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm really excited about your new podcast, Healthcare Unhinged, because I think the truth is, is that people are dying for real conversation and information that's actionable. And so in my background, I am a nurse by training. I was a nurse practitioner for over a decade, um, but I really threw myself into how can I expand the role and empower nurses to lead the healthcare transformation? Because nurses are the closest to the patient. They spend all day managing the care and the delivery systems that everybody else builds, but is not built well to operate well for that workforce. So I, um, in my past, I helped launch the first nurse hackathon, spun up the first nurse innovation program in the country, started that at a university at Northeastern and spun that now into a national international nonprofit called Sanciel. Um, my day jobs have always been running clinical innovation or clinical um, directions within teams. And most recently, I also launched a commission for nurse reimbursement to address the lack of a reimbursement model around nursing. Um, the reality is I think healthcare is in a unique place in time and history coming off of the largest pandemic in 100 years. We thought that was a period of exploration and innovation, um, but there's also a lot of things going on that's actually showing cracks that are no longer making healthcare sustainable. So I'm really excited to talk with both of you about the challenges that we're facing and figuring out if there's conversations that are not being had that we can bring to the forefront to really push and move the needle. And mic drop. Uh, that, was, that was perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> No, no, I, I, hey, you're, you're by far the most impressive person we've, we've had on here to date, and we're super excited to have you. Um, you know, I, I, Greg and I did some, some research on you at the, um, you know, before obviously coming on here, uh, you know, kind of branding yourself as a nurse innovator, I think is absolutely phenomenal. I think there's a ton of, um, of nurses in this space that, that, you know, are very forward thinking, um, there's a lot of undercurrents in healthcare in general right now. I think healthcare 10 years from now is going to look very, very different than it does today. Um, and I think, you know, nurses obviously are, are the backbone of that. And, um, and, and they're, you know, a big, a big reason why we're able to provide high quality care. And so, um, you know, with the, the Kaiser Permanente situation kind of, um, you know, creeping closer and closer to the finish line. Um, we would love to kind of kick off and, and get your just overall opinion on that, um, given your back, you know, uh, uh, area of expertise and background. So, um, so yeah, we'd love to kind of hear what you think there. Yeah, I knew right before we got on camera, we just talked about this. And so for the audience that hasn't been following this, I think this has caught the United States off guard, right? You're looking at the largest healthcare workforce strike in the history of the United States, right? So 75,000 healthcare workers are going to walk off the job as of tomorrow, which is October 4th, um, across seven different states, which will basically grind healthcare's ability to operate and function 
to a halt. Now, granted, they're going to try to keep the ERs open. They're trying to keep the ORs open. Um, but the interesting thing about this strike is it follows on the back of the largest nursing strikes that we had seen and threatened strikes by that. This actual strike does not actually control actually a large portion of the nursing population in this strike. So it's showing you the entire fragmentation and the breakdown of those on the front line saying the conditions within our hospital systems as they are currently staffed, as they are currently functioning, are unsustainable for those working on the front line. And I think we're seeing this growing disconnect between the front line and the administrators every single day that we're existing in healthcare. And I think that coming off the back of the pandemic, when those frontline workers were in those systems every single day, caring for patients without PPE, without treatment, without a vaccine, they risked their lives to save our society. They've come back out, we've rolled back from the pandemic and conditions in their minds are worse than ever before. And I think the reality is, is that we did not think that it was this bad. Until you need healthcare, you don't understand how what those happening within those four walls, um, unless you're married to one of those individuals who are there. And I think if we're about, what we're about to see is perhaps one of the biggest moments or resets uh, for the front line that are taking to this. And it's interesting because it is following right on the back of the largest UAW strike of automotive history, which is showing there is definitely growing discord between those that we consider working class front lines and those that are con those in the executive suites that are making decisions. And this discontentment, I, I don't think is unique to healthcare, but what it is about to do is it's about to strive, it's what's different than the UAW strike, which will be disruptive, is that when healthcare shuts down, it means that the entire level of risk and acuity to every single person living in those states has gone up dramatically. Those who have a car accident, somebody gets an anaphylaxis reaction at a schoolyard from a bee sting, who's gonna be there to do those things? And that, let me make it very clear, frontline healthcare workers never strike because they want to. They're striking because they feel if they do not take action, things are only going to continue to deteriorate. And their arguments today is patients are dying today because we're not taking action to make it better. Exactly. And I, and I think just to add to that, um, you know, there, there's so much talk around around pay and, um, you know, nursing, you know, wh whoever within the healthcare system needs to be paid more. Um, and I think it's so much more than that. To your point, I think it's they're doing this specifically to increase the, the level of patient care that is able to be delivered. And, um, and so, you know, we, obviously, you know, pay is a big part of this conversation too, but, but when you're, when you're overworked and you're understaffed, that level of care decreases significantly. Um, so being able to take a stand for that, um, I think is, a, I think is the biggest part of why this conversation is even being had. So. hundred percent. And Greg, I've been curious to get your thoughts. And I think one thing that we should note, right, is that. The reality is, is pay is very important because people are saying, if you're going to put me into conditions, you're going to pay me more. But also, if you look at historically, and I can only really speak to nursing salaries, but if you look actually at increase of nursing salaries over the course of the last decade, based on COLA data, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average increase of a nurse's salary between 2011 and 2019 was only 1.6% per year, which means it's half the level of what the rest of Americans do, right? The only significant increase in nursing salaries happened in 2020, in which the average nursing salary increased to by 3.26%, but the rest of the country saw raises of 5.9%. So the reality is, is that the frontline worker compared to those executives or other positions saw see significantly smaller levels of increase day in and day out. And one of the studies you should reference is actually the study published by Treasurer Fowle out of North Carolina, which he showed that $1.75 billion 
billion dollars of taxpayer dollars that went to nonprofit health care specifically went to executive pay compensation, specifically executive pay compensation, doubling CEO pay in the course of five years, as opposed to the increases in nursing or physician-based salaries within the same system. So the reality is these frontline workers are well aware of what these executive compensation packages look like. They've been able to track the amount of increases of wages that those executives have gotten, very similar to the UAW uh, arguments. But the reality, those wages haven't kept pace. But more importantly, not only have their wages not kept pace with increasing inflation and other resources, but also their environments have not been staffed to make it safe. So they're showing up at work doing more with less with decreasing wage and earning potentials, and the entire system rests on their shoulders. So Greg, opinions, I know you have a good pulse on some of this as well, but what are your thoughts on some of this too? Yeah, I think that's always a dangerous situation when you have administrators um, who have very little pulse on what is going down on, on the front lines, um, you know, with with salaries like that. It's, 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 um, it's not going to be, that's never going to be looked upon favorably. Um, and it's one of those things. It's, it's weird that it, it, it happens because it's so open and it, it, it's open, like it's open source information. You can get that information. And the fact that it's so blatantly in your face is, uh, I think almost like an insult to, to your frontline staff that they've, you know, they're, they're being compensated, um, that way. My, my thing or my, question for you is what are the implications of this KP strike? Um, you know, where does, where does this reverberate through throughout the nation? I, I have imagined that at some point when you have people that are so important to the stability of a community, you know, they're going to get what they want if they end up, if they end up leaving, at least I hope. And, and I think that they, it, it, but they, they have the leverage. I mean, they are they are one hundred percent in control when you decide to strike like that. I, it's it's just a fact of the matter. So where well, is Oh, sorry, Greg. I'm sorry. Exactly what you're saying. I think the one thing is, is actually, if you look at, for example, there's another strike that's been going on for two months at this point in time. Robert Wood Johnson nurses have been on strike for two months at this point in time. So, what's very interesting, actually, is the actual opposing forces that actually can drive out significant amount of pain for those who actually do strike. The whole question is, why did unions get formed? The unions got formed because the working class wanted to create a system of checks and balances where those at the top could still be held responsible by those on the front lines. Now, the truth is new mechanisms have actually taken place where actually those on the front lines that do choose to strike, those still in power have a lot of levers to pull to make being on the front line very difficult to strike. For example, Robert Wood Johnson actually discontinued the insurance cover of all of those nurses so that these nurses who now are on strike no longer have health insurance. It has been dragging on for a very long time. And the truth is what's fundamentally interesting about strikes is that hospital systems will staff with millions. The average cost of a nursing strike costs about $10 million a day. They are willing to spend per hospital, right? They are willing to invest 30, 50, $100 million to, to maintain a strike as opposed to actually negotiate with those on the front line. So I think what, what is different about Kaiser is they've done something remarkably different than historical. They went and have decided to orchestrate a nationwide strike that's going to affect the care delivery system across seven states at the same time. 
They brought the power of numbers, the power of uniformity to a situation to try to reverse the tables. Now, let's be very honest, Kaiser has already spent that money, right? They've already paid to have all of the backup uh, staffing agencies in place, hundreds of millions of dollars to be there to cover the three-day stake. That, that money is already spent. They were prepared to do it. That, to me, I think is the greater conversation to be having, which is, why, if, why are they willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in backup care to support actually what is the action of the strike instead of using those dollars to actually infuse into their healthcare systems and meet some of those demands? And that to me is the most perplexing. So what is going to be the results of this? I think we're seeing a new era of unionization. I think we're seeing a new era of organization from unions in a way that are going to be hitting organizations in the most impactful way to actually try to change the reverse of historical power structures that have largely been very effective at breaking down the union positions within these organizations. And what comes out of this is going to create a new baseline for all of those healthcare systems within those states to become the floor of which they're going to have to now negotiate against, because that is what this organization is fighting for, right? They are the brave ones out there fighting for the rest of all those healthcare workers in that state to design what is fair and safe and will bring them back from the, the strike lines. That's great. So, so I th you know, is it, is it fair to say then, you know, I guess th they shouldn't expect to get everything that they ask for, but at the same time, you know, they should expect to at least level up and then set or establish a new baseline to be able to, to, you know, set as a foundation to, to moving forward. I would not say that I'm an expert in union negotiations. However, I was a union nurse. And yes, I think we all know that this is a situation of compromise, right? I think we've all read the book mm -hmm. at this point, never split the difference, right? I think there's a lot more questions of love and war and, and fighting and negotiations than we realize. And I think the reality is, is that if you look at anybody in healthcare, which is slightly different than most other professions, the reason people get in to do the jobs that they do is they genuinely want to help other people, mm -hmm. right? It's never always been about the money. And that, to me, is what makes this whole situation the most frustrating. Because if they are out there fighting about money, you have to know that situation has to be very, very difficult for them to make this about money, right? Because the reality is that does not what gets them out of bed in the morning. I wish to say that you could motivate them with just throwing more money at the problem. But the reality is those people go to work because they want to alleviate suffering and care for people that are at the greatest and worst moments of their life. And those lives are in their hands, right? They're doing this from what I understand is because the scenarios are patients are dying right now because there's not enough staff. The, I was talking, and, and it's not just unique to them. It was interesting. I was meeting with the chief nursing officer of one of the major hospitals in Boston the other day. And she said, for the first time ever, she said, I have patients from around the city, around the state that are 30 years old on ECMO. ECMO is when your heart is failing and you need to go on a machine to clean the blood. We cannot get them seen for two days. Why? Because we have shortage of staff. So what we have is healthy 30-year-olds who otherwise are waiting for heart transplants would get them, but they are dying because we simply don't have the staff. So this is not unique to what's going on at Kaiser but it's unique to what's going on across the country. And the truth is we have to change, if we don't change the environment, because this is what is driving people out, then we are not gonna fix the underlying problem with just money alone. And I, that to me is why these, these organizers are actually striking. It's 
there's been a lot of money thrown at them at the table, right? What has not been thrown at them is we are going to guarantee to increase the amount of staff in respiratory therapy yeah. or in, you know, the support staff that's there. And that is the fundamental breaking point that is driving these uh, healthcare workers to head to the streets tomorrow. This, this is uh yeah, it's an unprecedented time for sure. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how it all unfolds. If you, if you could start one place, where would it be? So I think, um, so I'm actually going to pull this back into nursing because that is what I know closest and best. And I think it's part of the reason that we're seeing this fracturing across the entire system is nurses are a cost to healthcare system, which what that means is comparative to most other healthcare professionals, all degreed professionals, for example, there's a reimbursement model that is supplied for their services. So more occupational service, service at OTs, PTs, MRI techs, there's a billable code that can be presented to an insurance company, be reimbursed for their time. Physicians, everything they do, reimbursable. Nurses, however, are straight cost to healthcare systems. They were bundled into the room rate over 100 years ago. And why this is fundamentally important to understand is that it placed nurses squarely as a cost to healthcare systems. And there is no reimbursable code for nursing services. And this is different because in the 1920s, Nursing became the largest economic vehicle for women's financial independence after the women's suffrage movement and the women's right to vote came into place in 1920s in this country. In all hospitals, nursing services were actually billed as a service line, but physicians and administrators were largely men. They started to feel that women started to get too much financial knowledge and independence about this model. So in the 1930s, when they looked to develop a model around national insurance, they wanted to capture nursing value, but not make it financially recognizable within their P&L. So they turned to hotels. They saw that maids were rolled into room rates and they rolled nurses into room rates, forever hiding their value of a financial contribution to their healthcare system. Hence the term handmaiden was formed when nurses started to work for it. Hence why you saw the first nursing shortage hit the, the United States in the 1930s when nurses revolted against this model of having financial independence. But it is still the only profession 100 years later that is locked as a straight cost to healthcare systems. And what that has done is it is now misaligned when there are needs for more nurses as always being told we can't afford them. But in situations like this, when dollars are operating budgets are lower and nursing budgets have to stay at a certain percent to stay operational, you start pulling from other areas that now pit the front line against each other from needing that staff. So instead of hiring a you know CNA, can you, or three CNAs, can you hire one nurse? If instead of hiring a respiratory therapist, can you hire a nurse to do the job of a respiratory therapist and misplace these kind of support services? So the reality is, fundamentally, I think that the barrier to being able to create long-term change is, is this entire absence of a billing model. And fundamentally for me, why we started the Commission for Nurse Reimbursement is to solve this because, as you guys know, in business, if there is nobody that is willing to pay for a service, there is no business. And if you are strictly a cost, we are inherently always going to be in misalignment around those needs. So fundamentally, where would I start? I'd start looking at where is the money going. Second, I start following uh, to make and put forward a nursing reimbursement model to stop that redirection. And probably in all honesty, the last place that I would look at is we do need the role of government is to protect and to sit on the, I, I heard this from one of the leaders at Microsoft uh, developers. He said, the role of government is to not focus on profit. 
Because in business, everything always succumbs to profit over the person. And healthcare is becoming more and more about profit and not the person. So I think there is a role of government to step in here, especially within our nonprofit in rare regards of our reimbursement models on Medicare and Medicaid, that they are going to have to stop in and start looking at the situations and evaluating where is profit getting in the way of patients and creating a system that actually fundamentally puts the patients first over profit because we have somehow got turned upside down the last decade. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm helping build out a practice down in Southern California right now, and I want to get back to the reimbursement part as well here in a second. But talking about like corporate medicine, you know, Optum um, acquired one of the largest family medicine or primary care practices down there, and it has just like severely impacted the community and the care that they're receiving. So it's a cool initiative that we're working on, um, building out like a community based practice, which has been a, a fun project to work on. Um, but I mean, when you unveil the curtain down there, or some of the things that they're doing, like just acquiring offices so that people can't build new medical practices, like their, their name the is on landscape, The competitive landscape of healthcare is getting more competitive to your point. What I can say to you is California is the bright spot in this entire debate. They expanded Medicaid coverage. Their PACE programs are exceptional. Their focus on mental health and pediatric and behavioral health is one of the best in the country. So the truth is, is you actually have a combating force, but you're absolutely right. The truth is of what's happening and the acquisitions, the reimbursement models, there is definitely used as tools for anti-competitive behavior, which the question becomes, as we are watching the current debate about U.S. versus Google, the U.S. versus uh, Amazon. The question is, when is it going to become the U.S. versus our payer system to start questioning the competitive landscape and the monopoly or practices of antitrust establishment that is absolutely undermining our ability to access healthcare at scale through, to your point, new models that actually drive forward community care at scale as opposed to profiteering off of the, the backs of communities? Just highly controversial statement. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're here. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, I guess a question that I have is we've, we've covered a ton uh, during this podcast, but um, I guess just overall, like kind of where, do, where do you see us say five, 10 years from now? Do you have, do you see us in a better, you know, do you see us better off or worse off? Um, are you optimistic uh, given where we stand today? Kind of, kind of what's your like 30,000 foot view of where we could be? Yeah. So, all right. So I think the last 10 years of healthcare has been an experiment in the understanding of using technology in healthcare, right? Like so much mm -hmm. came in, it was done very poorly. We've started to get better, but it burned out a ton of our workforce because most of that was really poor user interfaces, right? We saw that the digital health boom was really a bust, right? Like honestly, when you just put content on apps, suddenly it really didn't change behavior. So millions of dollars were lost in that kind of bust. Now the question becomes, what is this next decade? How does technology actually enhance the patient experience, patient outcomes, and also the usability of those who are actually using it? And I actually do believe there is hope for a slight renaissance in this era because now we actually know how to take data and make it actionable. For a very long time, we just threw data at healthcare systems and we swam in this lake of data that nobody knew anything to do with, right? So I think in 10 years time, there are hopes for certain things that AI and things are doing that are breaking through scientific codes and the understanding of the human and the genome and the ability for medicines to be very targeted to specific disease states in a way that we're never going to have realized the last hundred years, right? That is what is so brilliant about it. 
Where I think there is chance of greater divide is the growing working class versus the elite. Those who own the technology that will be replacing the frontline workers or thinking they can replace the frontline workers. And where is that adoption? And also, where is that breaking point? So in 10 years from now, where do I think we will be? I actually think that from the profession of actually identifying, treating, and having medicines to deal with disease, we are going to be decades ahead than we would have been without the invention of AI. I think the question will become, who has access to it? And I still think the question is, who pays for this? The payers and the systems that are used? That is going to be the new regulatory breakthroughs that may need to start happening. Because the truth is, it's great if we have those medicines, but if nobody's willing to pay for them, or again, if that middleman sits between and basically says to the doctor, I'm so sorry, we're not going to okay and pay for that treatment. We are still in the same place today that we will be in 10 years, which patients are dying unnecessary deaths because we've simply created a system of bureaucracy that, again, has put profits over the patient. And so the debate for me in the next 10 years is how do we align that to put patients at the top of it while there's still healthy margins to be made by private businesses without the inherent barrier of, of, the, of the antitrust situations that we're dealing with currently. So lots of hope. No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and so question for you guys, um, and I think the audience would love to hear this, is like healthcare unhinged. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I go into so many, I look to some of the most brilliant people in healthcare and, and I feel like there's actually more people saying less than ever before on relative matters. And that is frustrating to me. So why do you think there is this fear that exists about speaking truth to the environment at this point in time. And I would love to get your guys' opinion because I mean, healthcare unhinged sort of sort of says, you know, things are unhinged. So what are we gonna do about it? And let's have a conversation about it. But curious on your guys' uh, reflection on that. Yeah, I think the, the main reason being is that everything is so accessible. So anything you say, well, one, I mean, you look at anything like, I mean, you look at a, at a Joe Rogan podcast, you can, split that up to get him to say whatever you want him to say, you know, um, so people can edit that information and spin it exactly how they want to spin it. So there's like the media component of it as well. Um, and it, and then the next thing, I think it's just, it's a sensitive topic. And, you know, it, for to be a healthcare administrator and to say anything negative about the healthcare system, um, you know, or to say like, hey, yeah, we are being profiteers, um, or trying to figure out how to make the most money off of each patient. Like it's, you know, that's not something you're going to say. Right. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of barriers to getting people to, to just speak up and, and say what's on their mind and, you know, and have it just be part of a healthy discussion as opposed to like being right versus wrong. And I think that that's the way that we need to approach this is that there it's not right and wrong. It's, it's just an idea that we need to work through and, or, you know, discuss as a, as a group. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. And I think, um, yeah, I think everybody's kind of just now starting to figure this out, uh, specifically, you know, LinkedIn, if, if you look at LinkedIn, uh, you know, there's been an explosion of content on LinkedIn or just over the last like two years, three years. Um, that's actually how Greg and I met. <laughs> um, and, and yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, I think people are still kind of hesitant and they're starting to dip their toe in that water and, and realizing like, oh, you know, I, 
I do have an opinion. I can, you know, find my voice here and, and be able to put these opinions out there. Um, and, and I think it's also their employees are, employers are having to get used to that. They're having to understand that, oh, you know, our, our employees are very well versed in all of these topics. They have very strong opinions given their backgrounds and expertise. Um, and, and it only benefits them. Well, in, you know, in most cases, I would say it benefits them to allow those employees to have a voice to, uh, you know, uh, you know, get their opinions out there. It brings eyes to the organizations that they're associated with. And, um, and you, you know, it's, it's, it's a net positive in my opinion at the end of the day. Uh, it's yeah. So. I like that actually. And it's a really good point to your point, the power of the corporations used to be their voice was heard. And now to your point, these mm-hmm. platforms that are happening are giving the voice and rising that the individual, um, although, associated with may not or may be representative of their organization, but it allows for new conversations to take place at scale that otherwise may not have done so. And I still think to the truth is that that world is trying to figure out how to operate, right? People ask me all the time, Rebecca, how have you not been fired for the things you say? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, I think the reality is, is that I'm, I, I am uh, fortunate that when I joined the organization, I said, you know, the truth is that I will stand by and always defend what I think is the nurse. Um, That to me is the fight of my career and the entire goal of everything that I do in this world. And compromising on that means that I will do nothing. When you start to compromise on what makes you you, what makes you passionate, what makes you believe that you can change the world, when you compromise on that, it means that you compromise on the impact that you're going to have. And I'm not going to say it doesn't come without risks. I'm not going to say that speaking out does not get your hand slapped or, or threatened or facing criticism in ways that um, is hard sometimes to manage. But the truth is, is that for as many of those experiences, you can have really thoughtful engagement with others who you may not directly be aligned with in all points of time, but you can find middle ground, which is one thing that I like about LinkedIn, where so many other platforms are so antagonistic. There is no middle ground. I feel like platforms like LinkedIn, the conversation we're having, allows you to find middle ground in a thoughtful way that allows you to move forward because nobody is ever going to get 100% of what they want, right? It's all about where can you find that shared vision or shared outcome that will help you for the moment align to drive that step forward. And, and one of the things, and you guys, I don't know about you, change never happens fast enough. And that has been something that I've started to learn with age is that to do anything and do it well. It's going to feel like you are running a race against something that never really moves. And suddenly two, three, five years, you look back and realize that somehow you changed the road just a little bit in its direction. And because of it, it is better. So what I'm going to wish you guys is is the best of luck as you keep building Healthcare Unhinged. It is not the race. It is a, it is a marathon. And I'm looking forward to all the conversations you guys are going to be having in the future with your guests. 